Section 1. The Philosophy of Vanu The basic principle which leads a libertarian from statism to a free society is the same that the founders of libertarianism used to discover the theory itself. That principle is consistency. Samuel Edward Conkin III, New Libertarian Manifesto Chapter 1. Vanu, A Brief History and Introduction since humans have existed on this earth, coercion has been used to control, manipulate, and exploit individuals. It is an unfortunate fact of history. The state uses it to keep their hapless citizenry in line, and private criminals use it to violate the autonomy of their subjects for personal gain. So then, what is politics? Politics is the art and science of managing centralized coercion. Plain and simple. That being said, it is no surprise that politics is undoubtedly a counterintuitive way to decrease the amount of coercion in your life. Would you drink a fifth of Jack Daniels to cure your alcoholism? Engage a couple more prostitutes to assist you in overcoming your sex addiction? What about making a few trips to Vegas as the means for eradicating that dreaded gambling vice? As ridiculous as those may sound, using politics to alleviate coercion is a far more dangerous utilization of this failed logic. It has far more far-reaching, unintended, and intended consequences. People's livelihoods have been and can be destroyed by so-called public policy, the state being the apparatus it is, mass murder, i.e. democide, the most deadly form of coercion is always on the table. Thus. The problem that freedom pioneers face is coercion. Back in the 1960s, a man named Tom Marshall, Rayo, resided in Southern California, then a bustling libertarian community. He was a techie engineer, a socially awkward fellow, a marijuana smoker, not much of a philosopher, but a freedom-seeking libertarian nonetheless. Early on, he spent some time at the Nathaniel Brandon Institute, a school teaching the objectivist philosophy laid out by Ayn Rand. Well, at its core, first by Aristotle, until his first major venture came about, the Free Isles Project. The Free Isles Project spawned out of the Preform Inform zine. The goal was to conduct research in the efficacy of setting up a new libertarian nation and the seemingly endless possibilities for freedom if it were to come into fruition. Rayo said, the Free Isle resident would, hypothetically, have all of the advantages of participating in a world commerce while being free from taxes and regulations. Furthermore, a free isle, if it were successful, could be a very effective demonstration of the merits of laissez-faire capitalism. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it was never successful. Hell, it never even got past the talking stage. Eventually, the movement subsided after disagreements rose regarding the size and scope of government, the lack of individuals willing to become involved, and the potential ramifications from existing nation-states. As an aside, the latter two are still big problems for libertarian country-building projects today. Thankfully, most of the newer projects are more anarchistic. But the facilitators are often terrible strategists and tacticians. Generally, they fail to learn from history. Rayo, frustrated with the all-talk, no-action libertarians of his day, said, Screw it! and moved out of his apartment into a camper mounted on his pickup truck. He became a van nomad and began laying the foundation for the most interesting, plausible freedom strategy today. Naturally, though, freedom means many different things to different people. 
freedom to a proprietarian anarchist means private property, personal autonomy, and peace. Freedom to a leftist means free health care, free college, and a massive welfare state. Freedom to a conservative means Christianity. It's not really Christianity. Jesus was most certainly an anarchist. The mass murder known as war and socialist insecurity. Language is quite fluid, which is why Rayo and Roberto, his freemate, proposed a new term, VANU. VANU is an awkward contraction of the words voluntary, not vulnerable, and simply defined is the condition or quality of, as well as the action of achieving an invulnerability to coercion. So with one definition, Vanuans avoid the issue of subjective interpretation altogether. You know coercion and violence when you see it. If you make radical lifestyle changes in an attempt to avoid those things, you are a Vanuan, as you are taking steps to become more invulnerable to coercion, regardless of whether the perceived threat is corporations, the state, or a crime-ridden hellhole. But early Vanuans also had interesting ways of interpreting liberty and freedom. Liberty, as defined by Funk and Wagnall's Standard College Dictionary of 1968, the reference Rayo used in his book, is a measure of freedom within restraints, granted by or through a sovereign power. Freedom, as defined by the aforementioned source, is the widest term, suggesting complete absence of restraint. So, Vanuans say that liberty is the general exemption from coercion, and freedom is an absence of coercion. To gain liberty, one utilizes legal intercises, or, as it is more vernacularly known, legal loopholes within the law. And you know what the state does to those, right? If they can, they close them. Damn those gun show loopholes and ghost gunners. Major props to Cody Wilson. Rayo specifically had an interesting take on legal intercises. One of his complaints about van nomadism was that it required reliance on slave tags, i.e. driver's licenses, registration. Chapter 2. Rayo's Influence on the Libertarian Anarchist Community as should be evident, Rayo's work was basically forgotten until Kyle Reardon and I launched the Vanu podcast in January of 2017. But Rayo likely influenced a significant popular strategy within anarchist circles, agorism. In Innovator, November 1965, Rayo wrote an article titled Self-Seeking Ethical Enclave, Black Markets. He defines an ethical enclave as Voluntary transactions between individuals who are living under a collectivist government when said transactions are conducted independent of that government. Ethical denotes the distinguishing characteristics of the participating individuals and adherence to the ethical principles of voluntarism, the principle that no one should initiate violence or threats of violence against another, and enclave denotes physical immersion within a philosophically alien society. An ethical enclave is not necessarily a separate geographical entity. So, Rayo was an early voluntarist, before the term was reappropriated, and he was describing what would be more vernacularly known as an agora. He continues, An ethical enclave, by existing within the territorial domain of a coercive government, is either legal, utilizing intercises, in the taxes and regulations of that government, or illegal, operating despite threats of violence. Now, he's describing the black and gray markets of agorism, either trading in goods and services that aren't illegal or dealing outright contraband. But he doesn't stop there. What are the differences between ethical enclave entrepreneurs and black market operators? He says that the differences are significant. The mixed premise, black market operator, 
while violating socialist laws, still holds, at least subconsciously, some of the premises embodied in laws. He may experience a depressing sense of guilt. He may act with the handicap of psychological conflicts. The enclave entrepreneur, however, disavows not only the particular instance of initiated violence, but the collectivist morality as well. He experiences an exhilarating sense of righteousness. He acts with the confidence and certitude of psychological consistency. The enclave entrepreneur, furthermore, is dealing not only with immoral, by their own definition, criminals, but with producers, with moral individuals who are committed on principle to hold confidences and honor contracts. His cost of doing business, therefore, tends to be less. In other words, he's calling your typical black market operator a controlled schizophrenic. See below. The ethical enclave operator has an exhilarating sense of righteousness as he recognizes the attempted violations of his autonomy and his act of rebellion in restoring it. Furthermore, he discusses the significance of dealing peer-to-peer -peer with like-minded individuals. Thankfully, this is the direction things have been going for about 20 years with open-source technology. Rayo was just, as always, way ahead of the curve. Recall the agorist notion of starve the state, then smash it. Even though ethical enclaves are, one, just an option for Vanuans, not a requirement, and two, small-scale, focused, with no goal of abolition. Vanuans are satisfied to coexist in protracted conflict with the state. Rayo still believed black and gray market trading could be a thorn in the state's side. Ethical enclave trading profits participating individuals and promotes liberty in general by reducing the plunder available to the collectivist government. Plunder which would most probably be used to finance further violations of liberty, plus propaganda to rationalize the violations. The potential effect of ethical enclave trading should not be underestimated. Mixed socialist governments direct most of their extortions and regulations at trade. They tax primarily income and sales, but transactions can easily be taxed only with the cooperation of at least one party to the transaction. Large-scale non-cooperation would render income and sales tax ineffective and greatly reduce government revenues, an ultimate check on a state's capability for violence against its subjects. An ethical enclave would also encourage growth of a libertarian movement by adding self-interested motivations. So, it sure as hell sounds almost identical to the strategy Sam Konkin, SEK3, proposed. The last question to answer is, was Konkin familiar with Rayo and Vanu? The answer? Yes. Undoubtedly. The following four excerpts are from articles published in the Southern Libertarian Review, January to June of 1975, all authored by Konkin, all of which you can find online. 1. Anarcho-Zionism The preform crowd either browned out or went into escapist trips such as becoming nomads, troglodytes, or wilderness dwellers. They sought invulnerability to coercion, or vanu, and preform inform became vanu life. Recently, it sputtered to a halt, and the paranoia freaks drifted back to civilization. From that, we can gather that SEK3 was familiar with the Vanuans and their goals, likely from the publications themselves, as can be seen, his perception of them was quite gloomy to say the least. 2. Carrots and Sticks Before I leave Southern California, let me not slight anyone, but simply affirm that there are many libertarians I know well enough to exalt, but who have not the general fame for their less persistent endeavors, generally due to working for a living, an affliction found rarely on the East Coast. And there are others of fame that do not enjoy my personal knowledge, such as Joe Galambo's, Natalie Hall, 
and Sky De Oros, El Rayo and Naomi Gatherer, and Lou Rollins, whose good and worthy efforts will someday earn them a more adept chronicler. So, he's highlighting the achievements of various individuals, two of them being Rayo and Naomi Gatherer, a.k.a. Roberta, Dr. Gatherer, his freemate. Additionally, our conception of Rayo during the 1960s and 70s is that he was not very well known. It seems like he was part of an extremely niche crowd, and if he enjoyed fame, it was not by the popular definition. That being said, the way Conkin phrases that last portion is interesting. Is it possible that Rayo was more popular than we originally assumed? Were or are there more Vanuans than we initially figured? Possibly. 3. Libertarian Strategy 1. So that we are not condemned to relive it, let's review our history. As of December 1968, libertarian strategy was directed either towards influence of the conservatives or conversion of the independents. It was wholly educational or retreatist. Robert Lefevre's Rampart College, Leonard Reed's Fee, Joe Galambo's FEI, Nathaniel Brandon's NBI, F.A. Harper's IHS, and Frank Kordorov's ISI were all educational institutes. The Vanu Lifers, Atlantis Group, and Oliverites were seeking escape. Except for the liberal innovators' leafleting of the Cow Palace in 1964, no libertarians were involved in a political campaign except as deviationist individuals. Many supported Nixon in 68, but they were clearly of conservative leanings. A little bit further. Many libertarians also turned inward with incessant psychology sessions and in-group self-criticism. This was the movements as reflected in 1972 in, say, New Libertarian Notes, and which could be pieced together from RAP, Libertarian Forum, Reason, Academic, Associates Letter, Vanu Life, Freeman, Sill News, Pacific Libertarian, and many local newsletters. Regarding the first quote, Sec 3 is quite accurate in stating that Vanu lifers were seeking escape. Although Rayo does discuss Vanu in cities, he notes that, I know of quite a few Vanuists and Libertarians who live, Allen, Humble's way, but I know none who seem to like it for very long. This is mainly due to the city's psychological pressures of the statist servile society, which is why Rayo prefers to live far enough back into the woods. Other than that main point, SEK3 is correct. The second excerpt is particularly interesting, though. Unfortunately, the only Vanu Life articles I have read are those found within Rayo's book, and any that have arrived in the batches of Vanu publications we've digitized. From that, I certainly don't gather the incessant psychology sessions or in-group self-criticism. Rather, from the entirety of the book, it mainly consists of back-and-forth discussions on strategy, with some philosophy sprinkled in. I'm not sure what Sec 3 was referring to here, but it is definitely possible that he is correct. Until we acquire a more complete library of those publications, we'll just have to take his word for it. 4. Counter-Campaign, 76. And who could we all agree on without sacrificing our principles? Behind whom could students of Murray Rothbard, Robert Lefebvre, Ayn Rand, Leonard Reed, Joseph Galambos, Carl Hess, Robert A. Heinlein, El Rayo, Natalie Hall, and Harry Brown unite? Nobody. The point is this. Samuel Edward Conkin III, Sec. 3, was certainly aware of Rayo and had followed his work. Therefore, we can safely assume, with a lot of evidence and similarities, that agorism is a reformulation and development upon Rayo's concepts of ethical enclaves. Those aren't all the notable mentions of Rayo or Vanu, but we're damn near the end. In the August 1987 edition of Liberty Magazine, two articles discussing Rayo and Vanu were published. One by Benjamin Best, titled, Tom Marshall, 
Innovator, A Week in the Wilderness, and the second by R. W. Bradford, titled The Mystery Man of the Libertarian Movement. The full articles can be found at www.vanupodcast.com, so I will only briefly summarize them. Just click on Articles About Vanu below the Start Here tab. In the first, Best discusses the time he met Rayo in 1967. It was as part of a program Rayo offered called Vanu Week, wherein individuals visited him in the Siskiyou region, northern California, southern Oregon, to learn about living the wilderness Vanu lifestyle. It is definitely valuable, yet this article was published 20 years after the fact, and Best was awfully fixated on a woman. It's likely not a 100% accurate recollection of his experiences. The second is more so a retrospective, wherein Bradford discusses the focuses of the libertarian community at the time of Rayo, in addition to how far outside the box Vanuans were thinking and doing. In regards to Rayo's disappearances, Bradford writes, Some people speculate that he grew weary of his paranoid lifestyle and returned to straight society to live an ordinary life. But others, those who knew him most intimately, believed he succeeded in achieving Vanu, that he continues to live today, deep in the mountains of southern Oregon, living a fulfilling life as a hunter-gatherer, free at last of the oppression of the state. Knowing Rayo as intimately as I feel I do, there's no way in hell he could have just given up and returned to the servile society. So my speculation is that he continued to live the wilderness Vanu lifestyle, probably mostly in underground structures, until his death. As far as scouring the internet, those are all of the honorable mentions I've found of Rayo and or Vanuism. It's worth noting that in Jim Stum's publications, i.e. self-liberation notes, ocean freedom notes, going mobile, there are many letters discussing Rayo and or Vanu, but those all took place from the 1970s to the 1990s. You can download all of them for free by visiting vanupodcast.com. In conclusion, he certainly had a drastic impact on the libertarian community, even though the majority of the adherents have never heard his name. His contribution of ethical enclaves laid the framework for one of the most popular and efficacious strategies out there today, agorism. For the most radical libertarians of his day, he provided them with solutions in pursuance of personal freedom. When most of the libertarians around him were only interested in talking, man, things don't change much, huh? His work laid dormant for some 20-plus years, but it's back now, and with a vengeance. You, the reader, or listener, are a modern self-liberator. Chapter 3. The Why to Vanu There are still some more preliminary concepts, ideas, and definitions that need to be covered before getting into the action of Vanu. Political crusading, controlled schizophrenia, collective movementism, import-export, and meantime to harassment. We'll cover the more philosophical ones first, and then move on to the couple that interact directly with the action side. As should be clear by now, Rayo and other Vanuans were, and are, actually serious about personal freedom and an invulnerability to coercion, which automatically rules out political crusading, a bullshit strategy for bullshit libertarians. Politics, in fact, makes you more vulnerable to coercion, i.e., you are participating in their privacy-unfriendly system. Rayo had this to say, The political crusader who wants to take over or destroy a state seriously threatens the rulers and will bring strong countermeasures. But the libertarian who is satisfied to coexist in protracted conflict with the state is merely an annoyance. The more astute ruler is aware, as is the libertarian, that most people are sheep and will remain sheep no matter how the libertarian lives. Of course, the statist would still rather squash the libertarian if it were easy. 
So libertarian tactics must be such as to make counter-counterattacks ineffective and prohibitively costly. Political crusading is also contradictory. Speaking in terms of anarchists, or freedom pioneers more generally, consistently living the principles they espouse. Means determine ends, and function determines form. Using the apparatus of the state to achieve freedom shouldn't be taken as a serious consideration by any logical, rational human being. Political crusading is but one example of the social phenomenon of collective movementism. In other words, naive individuals getting together in large groups, working towards mostly unreachable goals. Not only are these mass social movements anti-individualistic, as the individual tends to get lost in the collective, but the larger the membership of an organization, the further away from the original goal it gets, often to the point of unrecognizability. Just take a look at the modern libertarian and anarcho-capitalist movements and communities to view this in action. Both of them started out with quite spectacular aspirations. At the core of these ideologies, private property, peace, and the non-aggression principle, or as Rayo called it, the ethical principle of non-coercion, were tantamount, and the goal was to build a free society. Anything outside the scope of those items is personal choice, and therefore it is immoral and unethical to interfere with those activities of private persons. Anarcho-capitalists took it a step further and said, okay, so government is immoral and the services they provide are inefficient, to put it mildly. The market could better allocate and manage the use of scarce resources in a peaceful, spontaneous, mutually beneficial manner. So they theorized about the notion of private justice and arbitration, private policing and private defense. But only one of those things has ever really been demonstrated. Private security slash policing by the non-anarchist Threat Management Center in Detroit, Michigan. Fast forward to today, and the big debates in both of these communities are, one, whether or not anarchists should support state-enforced borders, two, whether or not we should support Dolan J. Tramp, and three, if we should support Augusto Pinochet-style democide and give our political enemies free helicopter rides. Surely, people are individuals, and there are still great folks who identify with those ideologies. I'm simply speaking of trends. So why does this sort of thing happen? How can people go from relatively decent, peaceful human beings to state-worshipping, contradictory fools? Rayo had a term for this phenomenon, controlled schizophrenia. He only mentions that term explicitly once. I will add the preceding paragraph for context. If satisfaction could be plotted with respect to freedom for a large number of people, I think the graph would have a low peak of relative satisfaction around 5-10% to 10 freedom, a higher peak around 90-95% to 95 freedom, and a wide depression in between. The lower maximum is exemplified in contemporary society by many a successful middle American. He lives conventionally, but takes advantage of some of the easier, more obvious loopholes. He pays income taxes, but hires a tax accountant to minimize deductions. He registers for the draft, but goes to college in hopes of being made a technician instead of a target. His mental state is one of controlled schizophrenia. He believes most of the statist myths in which he was indoctrinated, yet maintains a modicum of skepticism. He goes to church, or at least accepts their standard of morality, but is not above having a drink at a nude bar. He is largely rational in his work, but keeps his rationality compartmented. He does not dares not critically examine his life as a whole. Although, self-maintained schizophrenia leads to unhealthy and unhappy complications, 
On a whole, the opportunistic serf may have it better than his more consistent, more gullible, less self-motivated brother, who is drafted and becomes a target, and a paraplegic rotting in a VA hospital, or struggling along in a low-paying, high-taxed job with a load of installment debts. Other examples of controlled schizophrenics include anarchist politicians, libertarians, or anarchists for Dolan J. Tramp, anarcho-secessionists, state nullification advocates, and political crusaders, generally speaking. All of these folks failed to exercise the collectivist spooks from their heads and ended up backsliding into servile society games, if they ever gave them up at all. So a sort of formula can be put together. Political crusading plus controlled schizophrenia plus coercive movementism equals your statist servile society. The statist servile society is the main enemy of the Vanuin, the items on the left side of the equation being elements thereof. So Vanuans pursue radical lifestyle changes to become more invulnerable to the coercion of the controlled schizophrenics at large. But how does one gauge whether or not their current lifestyle makes them more invulnerable to coercion, and to what degree? Well, right at the outset, Rayl formulated the idea of mean time to harassment, which he defined as the strength of Vanu, usually expressed in years. MTH is typically used to gauge the profitable viability of concealing a Vanuum, the place or situation of an invulnerability to coercion, relative to one's competency at Vanumi, the art of achieving an invulnerability to coercion. He includes the following visual aid. To view the chart, check out the physical or digital versions available at libertyunderattack.com. Since the image isn't the clearest, please allow me to explain what's going on here. On the vertical axis, we have the degree of Vanu in MTH, or number of years a Vanuin can predict to live undiscovered. On the horizontal axis, we have the difficulty of concealing a Vanuum, the place or situation of an invulnerability to coercion, which is equivalent to the amount of activity within said Vanu shelters. Regardless of what type it is, the chart includes summer survival, all-weather survival, comfortable home, small workshop or laboratory, small manufacturing, light industry, and heavy industry. So the idea is that the less mobile, larger a Vanuum is, the harder it is to conceal, the higher competency required for the increased activity and an overall likely drop in the amount of years it will take for them to be discovered. As a Vanuum moves horizontally and vertically in the chart without increasing activity while also increasing their competence, their MTH will gradually increase. If Ivanowin moves vertically, horizontally in the chart, which is increasing activity, without being more competent, their MTH will decrease. In the chart, there are eight levels of Vanu, namely A through H. What Vanu lifestyle changes would be applicable for each? A, B, and C level, wilderness Vanu, or bugging out. D level, van nomadism. E level, off-grid stationary living, i.e. tiny home living. F-level, small manufacturing, i.e. a small workshop. Here's Rayo's personal take on A to C-level Vanu. The diagonal lines represent levels of capability one order of magnitude, or 10x, apart. Six years ago, in 1967, when I was becoming seriously interested in Vanu but had little experience, my competence was roughly represented by line A. Three years ago, after experience with living in a van, competence had increased to line B. Today, our competence level is approximated by C. Thus, at present, we can choose among the following. 
a small tent adequate for summer only, and a remote place with 100 years of meantime to harassment. A larger tent and more equipment and supplies and a place with year-round access and a 10-year MTH. The larger tent is also more visible. There's one other aspect to point out regarding the above chart. The profitable and unprofitable viabilities. What do Rayo and other Vanuans mean by this? Well, in short, the further horizontally one goes on the chart, the more equipment necessary and the more severe the risk of confiscation becomes. Rayo worded it thusly. Within the shaded area, Vanu is not likely worthwhile, i.e. total cost of being Vanu will usually exceed the total benefits. The boundary between the viable and non-viable situations slopes downwards on the left, at least under present conditions. This is because, one, the lower levels of activity require much less equipment and thus a higher probability of confiscation is acceptable. Two, the lower levels of activity are less suspicious and thus unlikely to lead to serious loss, even if discovered. For that reason, G and H level operations would be huge in scale, making them the least practical, at least for the foreseeable future. Consider Aurora from Alongside Night, a sovereign freeport, and a new libertarian country as an example of these. It's worth noting that there may be some inaccuracies in the above explanation. There's only one article wherein Rayo explains meantime to harassment, and I have to go with what's available, as I can't call him up on Skype and get clarification. Nonetheless, MTH is critical to Vanu, so an honest attempt at fleshing out the idea is at least necessary. One final element critical to determining one's meantime to harassment is Rayo's conception of import-export. He says, An optimally liberated lifestyle must involve a sort of one-directional isolation. The liberator maintains his access to their open but not free trading centers while denying them access to his home. A freeman obtains information, techniques, key equipment, and supplies out of the servile society, exporting labor or products in return. And during import-export activities, he practices deception. Perhaps carries a driver's license, genuine or faked. Perhaps pays some sales tax he cannot conveniently avoid. But the freeman's home base is physically concealed. There he spends most of his time. There he may sleep imbibe, love, design, build, trade with fellow freemen, and raise children in relative safety from the savages of the state. A freeman's home must be a figurative castle. At one time, Rayo had hopes that a Vanu association or a Vanu mini-culture would come into fruition, which would eventually develop into an alternative economy. Unfortunately, that still does not exist today, sans deep web marketplaces in limited context which necessitates interaction with the statist servile society, at least to a certain extent. Modern Vanuans can only be so self-sufficient. One may have a permaculture farm which produces 100% of the food necessary, a fresh water source allowing him to bypass the need for city water, and he may even utilize alternative energy sources allowing him to go off-grid. But what if one of the solar panels breaks and needs to be replaced? I suppose it's possible for him to learn the ins and outs of how solar panels work, the components involved, and how to construct it from the ground up. But that doesn't sound like an efficient use of time when he could spend a couple hundred bucks and get one delivered to his house. And, even if this Vanuan in question is able to achieve that, what if the tractor he uses for his farm needs a new engine? If his freemate needs a crown on one of her teeth? Maybe his son needs diabetes supplies? Rayo himself utilized import-export. He purchased bulk, storable foods, replacement glass for the windshield of his van, the polyethylene for his tent, and marijuana for his own personal use, the latter being less important considering his residence adjacent to the Emerald Triangle. 
The point is, there's nothing wrong with utilizing the statist servile society's open but not free trading centers, as long as the aforementioned one-directional isolationism is in place. But import-export isn't only useful for the transacting of goods and products. Since said alternative economy is not in place yet, some Vanuans choose to or must export their labor to sustain their lifestyles. Typically, this is done in the form of freelancing, temporary seasonal employment, trading in ethical enclaves, the black and gray markets of agorism, or basically any other alternative to the servile society's 9-to-5 grind. It's worth noting that security culture is of utmost importance when interacting with the servile society. Keep in mind, this society does not respect you as a person. They advocate for violations of your autonomy ad infinitum, and many would like to see Vanuans tossed in cages by the bludgies for simply holding the philosophical positions they do. Rayo's main recommendation for this was to keep the interactions to a minimum, which he did in one way by getting months of supplies at once. Yet there are other strategies you can utilize as well. If you're going to be driving to their open but not free trading centers, own an inconspicuous vehicle. For example, a work van draws less attention than an RV if you're living aboard, a Mercury Grand Marquis less than a flashy yellow Corvette, etc. Follow all the traffic laws, have your slave tags up to date and visible, keep your automobile clean, and hardest for me, don't blast metal music for all to hear. Pay in Federal Reserve notes, digital currencies, or barter. Using a credit or debit card makes your movements traceable, and if the coercers can find you, they can coerce you. If at all possible, try to find like-minded individuals to trade with. Support anarchists, libertarians, and or Vanuans, not controlled schizophrenics. Role-play police interrogations ahead of time in case the bludgies try to harass you. When you are pulled over on the side of the road, it's not time for a philosophy lesson. It's not time to tell the bludgies how evil the institution he works for is. Nor is it even time for you to plead your case. You've been put in a coercive, potentially violent situation. Just try to survive the encounter and deal with any fallout after the fact. Utilize the gray man strategy and blend in with your surroundings. Wear basic clothes, don't open carry an assault rifle, have situational awareness, and don't initiate conflicts with others. I'm sure there are others, but that at least gives you an idea. At some point in the future, as second realms and Vanu mini-cultures are created, hopefully the need for import-export will be eliminated. But, for the time being, if Vanuans prefer to avoid subsistence living, some interactions with the servile society is necessary. All of the philosophy and important concepts out of the way, let's begin talking about strategies and lifestyle changes that can make you more invulnerable to coercion. In other words, now that a collective movementism, also called bullshit libertarian and political crusading, has been discredited as a liberation strategy, it is appropriate to re-examine strategies which treat freedom as an individually achievable way of life and marketable commodity. Chapter 4. Setting the Stage for Solutions So what counts as a Vanu freedom strategy? Basically, any lifestyle change that makes the practitioner more invulnerable to coercion. Rayo offered a number of suggestions, but it's important to keep in mind that Vanu is yours for the making, and that a lifestyle which was Vanu 100 years ago may not be Vanu today. Some lifestyles Vanu today were not possible 100 years ago and may not be Vanu 50 years from now. In other words, there are no silver bullet solutions and Vanu is implemented on an individual basis. What works for me may not work for you and vice versa. It's also important to note that some strategies may not have even been conceived of yet 
and others may be impossible at present due to technological capabilities, i.e. space study. So let's begin our examination of potential lifestyle changes in pursuance of personal freedom. You're listening to Vanu, a strategy for self-liberation by Shane Radliff, published by Liberty Under Attack Publications. For more great books, privacy tools, and resources, just visit libertyunderattack.com. Want to see more productions like these? Find ways to support our efforts by visiting libertyunderattack.com and vanupodcast.com. Thanks, and cheers from the Free Republic. Now back to the book. Chapter 5. Go Gypsy. Now. Nomadic lifestyles seem to be the most efficacious path towards personal freedom and the invulnerability to coercion. If the coercers can find you, they can coerce you. Constantly moving around can serve as one solution to this problem. There are a number of these nomadic lifestyles, each with its own specific obstacles, initial level of investment capital, and other natural barriers to entry. For the freedom pioneer interested in adventure and traveling, nomadic lifestyles may be the answer. In this section, we will cover van nomadism, or vehicle nomadism, more generally, minimalist sailboating, perpetual traveling, wilderness vanu, and mobile intentional communities. Chapter 6. Van Nomadism Van nomadism was the first strategy Rayo pursued for good reason. Not only is it the easiest lifestyle change or pursuance of freedom, but it just so happens to be the cheapest. As evidence of the latter, ask your average individual in the servile society what their biggest expense is. The answer will almost undoubtedly be housing, regardless of whether they rent or own. So, if an individual has decided that the van life is the lifestyle for them, how do they get started? There are two paths that come to mind now. Just do it and put together a plan. We'll cover the former first. Let's say that John has been working in the Servile Society for 20 years and has $100,000 saved up. He may learn about the lifestyle and pull the trigger immediately, as he has already achieved some level of financial independence. So he buys a vehicle, whether it's a van, camper, RV, car, or whatever, converts it into a liveaboard rig, if necessary, and moves in as soon as possible. More power to John. But this is not the most recommended path. Clearly, van nomadism is a radical lifestyle change compared to stationary dwelling. He would likely have some issues adapting early on, especially in trying to figure out what to do with that extra 40-plus hours a week not spent in the Servile Society's 9-to-5 job. The likely drastic shift towards being extremely self-sufficient will probably be difficult as well. Also consider the fact that his vehicle won't be connected to the grid. He will have to learn to keep up his hygiene without running water. He'll probably have to get electricity to his rig to power his devices, in addition to just adapting to living in a space the size of an average bathroom, among other things. One remedy to these problems is to make a plan and take small steps towards the eventual goal of van nomadism. Take my situation, for example. Being a poor 26-year-old, I don't have a nest egg to sustain myself for a year or two on the road, let alone the capital investment necessary to purchase and convert a van at this time. Even worse, I have debt to take care of before I set sail for sunnier waters. So for me, this will be a one- to two-year journey, which I'm becoming more and more okay with as the more time I take, the more prepared I will be. As Jason Booth, my co-host on the Vanu podcast, always says, proper preparation prevents piss-poor performance. Let's take a look at my situation more specifically to see how such a lifestyle could be decided upon and planned for. I first heard of van nomadism back in mid-2016 when I initially came across Rayo's book. It was interesting, sure, but I had no desire whatsoever to pursue the strategy. Reason being, I was extremely passionate about the prospects of finding freedom on the ocean sea. Minimalist sailboating below. But unfortunately, I don't have the investment capital to purchase a sailing vessel. I've never sailed a boat, and I still, to this day, have no idea how to traverse the high seas. 
So I continued my research into freedom strategies for another two years, still almost entirely unsure as to what my future would hold, until one weekend on YouTube. Towards the beginning of 2018, I stumbled across yet another van conversion video and ended up spending the entirety of the weekend and most of the month watching similar content. I fell in love with the lifestyle concept and made the decision, I'm going to be a Vanu and Van Nomad. It was time to make plans and bring this freer future into reality. I started by brushing the figurative dust off the Excel spreadsheet containing my frugality budget that I had put together a year prior, but failed to stick to for any significant period of time. I updated my income, adjusted my expenses, and recalculated the amount of money I would have left over. Unfortunately, as I mentioned above, the leftover money was not going to savings or my new home on wheels, but was actually going to first realm banksters in the form of credit card debt, and at the time of publication, still is. However, there was, and is, still plenty to do in the meantime. Namely, make frugality a habit. Get rid of a bunch of stuff I had no need for. Minimalism. Adjust my diet to what I envisioned it being on the road, i.e. little fast food, no microwavable meals, less meat as it's an expensive source of protein. Conduct market research on vans and take some for test drives to figure out what feels best to me. Ponder or plan the van conversion itself. Research the best, most affordable, easiest to configure off-grid energy setup. Build up my financing portfolio. Generate a handful of passive income streams, this book being one of them, and probably even a few other things, but you get the point. Even if you aren't ready to live your chosen Vanu lifestyle now, there are always things you can do to prepare for it. The above list are all things that I'm currently doing. I'm still paying off the aforementioned debt, although I'm so close. Once that account is closed, the fun truly begins. Let's talk about those next steps and considerations. Purchasing a vehicle for living aboard, the conversion itself, making money on the road, potential legal intercises to exploit, and the modern van nomad community. Chapter 6, Part 2. Choosing a Vehicle for Living Aboard. This is a crucially important step, but that goes without saying. Not only are you purchasing a vehicle, but you're purchasing your mobile home on wheels. The vehicle you choose could very well make or break this lifestyle. It could take you on the most incredible adventures and provide you with a significant increase in freedom, or it could lead you down a road of misery. Recall the saying, proper preparation prevents piss-poor performance. What sort of consideration should be taken into account? First and foremost, space. How much room do you need to live relatively comfortable with most, if not all, of your belongings? If you'll be vanuing with others, how much more additional space will be necessary? In other words, would upgrading from a Chevy Astro to a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van, a super common choice, be enough, or are you now in the realm of campers, RVs, or schoolies? Regardless, you're going to have to get rid of some stuff. Frugality and minimalism are requirements for most van nomads. Secondly, your purpose. What is your purpose for pursuing this lifestyle? Are you going to be a van nomad living in a large city with various squat spots? Are you going to be looking for the most isolated, beautiful wilderness locations? Maybe a blend of both? Regardless, this is extremely important. If you're pursuing the former, you'll constantly get harassed with a massive Class A RV. They'll run you out of town one way or another, whether it's the bludgies or the hostile nature of the servile society to alternative lifestyles. Instead, you should find a vehicle that is suited for stealth camping whether that's a work van or a box truck. On the other hand, if you're looking for wilderness adventure, your vehicle will need to be outfitted differently, although it would still be wise to configure it in such a way that you can stealth camp if necessary. Thirdly, your budget. Do you have a large amount of investment capital, or are you like me and looking for something on the lower end price-wise? There are benefits and drawbacks to both. Just as with anything in life, if you can afford a new or newer Sprinter van, 
you might be better off not having to worry about breakdowns or repairs for some time, and you might have a more luxurious home on wheels. But you'll also have to pay for a full-coverage automobile insurance on a $30,000-plus vehicle. Repairs will likely be more expensive as well. One vlogging couple I followed spent fifteen grand replacing the engine in their Sprinter. Granted, they were in Mexico. Additionally, newer vans come chock-full of electronics, and those can fail. If they do, you'll likely not be able to fix it, and even if you're able to, you probably won't have the tools or instruments necessary to do so. They're typically expensive specialty parts, making you more reliant upon the Servile Society. If you're traveling through the barren desert far away from civilization and a sensor malfunctions on an otherwise perfectly functioning vehicle, you might be dead on the side of the road until help arrives. The more features, the more that can fail. It's worth noting the computers and possible internet connectivity in newer vehicles. These can certainly be used to track your location, making you more vulnerable to coercion, not to mention that these computers can be hacked remotely to take over your vehicle. Do you recall the bizarre death or murder of journalist Michael Hastings a few years back, in addition to, I think, the Vault 7 leaks in the late 2017? Granted, I highly doubt that any Vanuan would make themselves such a target where that could actually be possible. If it were, they probably wouldn't be a Vanuan. With older vans, there are less electronics, making them easier to repair yourself. Parts are everywhere for these vehicles, too. Sure, breakdowns can still be expensive and painful, but you'll probably be in a better financial position when it's all said and done. The most common vans that fall into this category are Chevy Express work vans, Dodge conversion vans, and Ford E-Series vans. Fourthly, fuel. Diesel engines typically get more miles per gallon when compared to unleaded engines of the same size, but they can be more difficult for the average individual to work on depending on the vehicle in question. Do some market research of your own and discover what will work best for you in your situation and applicable expertise. Lastly, two-wheel drive or four-wheel drive. In my search for vans so far, this has not been a major focus. Reason being, a two-wheel drive van could get me mostly anywhere I want to go. And if I were to ever get stuck on the beach or something, I'd have the tools on hand to get myself out. Oh, the things you learn from van nomads on YouTube. That, and from what I know, 4x4 vehicles are far more expensive. At this juncture, it's not a necessity or a preference for me, but it might be for you. Fantastic. Enjoy those paths further off the beaten trail. It's also worth mentioning two other possible vehicle choices, a standard car or minivan. Believe it or not, there are quite a few van nomads living out of these super small spaces, some out of necessity, some out of choice. If you don't need much, maybe you just decide to hit the road in your Ford F-150 with a topper, like one of my Patreons does. But maybe you toss a mattress in the back of your Honda Odyssey and see where the road takes you. To close out this section, let's get into a little philosophy. Most everyone has heard of the quote by Benjamin Franklin regarding trading liberty for security. Similarly, there is a trade-off between freedom and comfort. Stationary dwellings are quite comfortable. You have air conditioning in the summer, heat in the winter, hot showers twice a day, a flushing toilet, and all of the electricity you could ever use, and more. But you are inherently not free, as all of the comforts you enjoy are provided by someone else. Rayo and Roberta were a living example of this trade-off. Only their choice was on the other end of the spectrum. Wilderness Vanuing in the Siskiyou was quite miserable at times, and they said as much. But they were free, both in the physical sense and also according to their mean time to harassment. Clearly, most individuals would not be interested in Wilderness Vanu, me included. So the idea is to strike a balance between freedom and comfort, and thanks to technological advancements, that's quite easy to do nowadays. As an example, in my van, I'll have a sink powered by a pump, enough solar power to run all of my devices, internet access via a mobile hotspot, and free Wi-Fi whenever it's available, and some sort of shower system, probably a solar shower. Sure, they may not be as convenient as in my stationary dwelling, but I choose to sacrifice those comforts in pursuance of freedom. 
All of that said, this freedom versus comfort dichotomy certainly comes into play when choosing your vehicle for living aboard. A two- or four-wheel drive van can go a lot more places than a long, slow, and clumsy Class A RV. Choosing one of these larger vehicles will limit your freedom of access to many of the most beautiful, isolated places. But maybe that's okay for you. A few considerations to leave you with. If you're going to be buying an older van, make sure to check the undercarriage for rust. Look out for water leaks, as they can lead to mold. The holes can be fixed and the mold removed, but it can be a major pain. If you're buying a used vehicle, it might be wise to take it to a trusted mechanic before purchasing. If you're planning on gutting the back of the van for a conversion, don't pay too much attention to stains on the carpet, torn upholstery, stuff like that. These vans, campers, and RVs are everywhere. For the latter two, the best time to buy, I think, is in winter, after people return from their summertime escapist rituals and put themselves away in their boxes for another year. Now, you're ready to purchase your mobile home on wheels. Chapter 6, Part 3, The Conversion. You've purchased your mobile home on wheels. Congratulations. What's next? Well, converting it to a liveaboard rig. This is the part in the process where you will plan, design, and build out your new abode. It's also the part I'm most looking forward to, in all honesty. If you decide to go the RV or camper route, this might not be as relevant to you, but there will likely be some modifications since you will be living aboard full-time, or close to it, rather than just using it for weekend getaways. Therefore, the following information should still be valuable. This is the part where YouTube will be your best friend. Reason being, many van nomads upload videos chronicling every step of the conversion. I'd also point you in the direction of the old Vanu publication, Going Mobile. See additional resources below. Most of this zine is dedicated to letters from van nomads back in the 1960s to the 80s discussing their rig, living situations, obstacles, etc. But there are also diagrams, pictures, and tutorials on the conversions themselves. For most, the conversion process consists of eight steps. Gutting the future living space, performing a deep clean of the entire vehicle, patching any holes or leaks, getting rid of any rust, dealing with any mold, etc., running the wires for electricity, installing the roof fans and vents, insulating the van, both the floor and the walls, sometimes the roof, laying down the flooring and putting up the walls, and then the rest of the build-out, i.e. whatever you decide upon. Obviously, this process may vary depending on the individual and the situation, but these are the main steps. Important Notes Make sure to run the wires for your electricity before installing the insulation and the walls. Also, don't half-ass your electrical setup. Do it right the first time. Pay an experienced electrician to help you, if need be. It's cheaper and less painful than your mobile home going up in flames from some silly avoidable mistake. What are some other considerations to take into account? Well, what are your needs? This is the most important question and will determine the complexity or simplicity of the process. If you've never lived out of a vehicle before, you probably won't know the full answer to this question. Therefore, it's recommended that you take practice runs before moving aboard. This way you can determine whether or not this lifestyle is for you in addition to discovering what you truly, really need. Some individuals go with bare-bones conversions. For example, John may decide to toss a mattress in the back of his minivan, grab some gallon jugs of water, some food and a camp stove, and hit the road. Others, like Carl and Jahala, a Vanuan van nomad couple traveling Australia, go all out with their conversion. You can view images of their exquisite rig below, but I would recommend checking out the van tour on their website, www.comfortablylost.com. You can find links to all of their social media accounts there. Readers note, there are photos available which you should be able to find on the website. As you can see, Carl and Jahala spent quite a bit of money on their van and the subsequent conversion, easily more than $50,000 in total. An expensive car, but a cheap home. But you don't have to spend that much. Hell, you can spend as much or as little as you want. I've seen conversions ranging from 500 bucks 
all the way up to 20 grand. Most van nomads will fall somewhere in the middle, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a beautiful, functional, and comfortable mobile home. Here are some features you'll undoubtedly add during your conversion. A bed, a kitchen area, possibly a cooking stove and a sink. Be sure to vent this outside to avoid carbon monoxide poisoning. Storage, lots and lots of easily accessible storage space. A way to dispose of human waste. Some sort of system to keep up on hygiene, i.e. a shower or wet wipes to hold you over until your next visit to Planet Fitness. Roof vent, an electricity source, gas generators, solar power, wind power, etc. Blackout curtains for privacy if you have windows. Locks inside and out for safety and privacy. Here are some other important considerations to take into account. Make sure everything is secured in the vehicle. The big heavy things most importantly. You don't want your belongings launching across your vehicle in transit. And, God forbid, if you were to get into a high-speed accident, you don't want those things to turn into projectiles. Use lightweight materials when converting your vehicle and keep track of all the weight that you'll be adding to it. Try your best to keep it under the maximum recommended weight. Reason being, overloading your vehicle will impact the handling, braking, gas mileage, etc. Don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good, though. Keep in mind, pursuing Vanu is a lifelong endeavor. As you gain more experience and become more competent, you will always find ways to improve upon your Vanu home base. Hence, why many YouTube van nomads have multiple conversion series on their channel. I could go into a lot more depth, but considering the communication format of this medium, I'll stop here and turn you over to the modern van nomad community on YouTube. They're seriously a helpful bunch. Chapter 6, Part 4, Making Money on the Road Most individuals pursuing van nomadism will be leaving their full-time job in the Servile Society. Some will have enough savings to live for many years, and others will have to find ways to make money on the road. Looking at damn near 100 different case studies, i.e. van nomads, the average cost per month for this lifestyle is 500 to 1,000 bucks a month, or 6,000 to 12,000 a year, roughly. This includes the following core expenses: car insurance, food, gas, Planet Fitness membership, AAA membership, cell phone plan for the mobile hotspot, basic health insurance, and vehicle repair and maintenance. There will likely be additional expenses, but those will be determined on an individual basis. For example, I need to factor in diabetes supplies, test strips, insulin, vape juice for my vape pen, and medical cannabis, as I will be first venturing out to Colorado in an attempt to cure or at least treat this dreaded autoimmune disease. Some may fear the unknown. How will I make enough money to survive on the road? Now that you know the average cost of this lifestyle, I hope that fear has been quelled, at least to a certain extent. It's not difficult to make $1,000 a month, the higher end, if you're willing to work. So what are some ways to generate that income? First off, I mentioned above, many Vanuans utilize temporary and seasonal employment. When I venture to Colorado, I plan on taking temporary jobs at ski resorts. Free lift passes, anyone? But it's not limited to that, of course. This is a terrific option for Vanuans. Please, allow me to explain below. Situation. An individual takes a three-month seasonal position at the going rate of $10 an hour. He nets about 400 bucks a week. $1,600 a month, and $4,800 for the entire gig, the theft known as taxation not included. If he or she is living on $750 a month, that comes to $2,250 in living expenses during the time of the temporary position. That leaves the individual in question with $2,550 in savings, or three months of the van nomad lifestyle when it's all said and done. So, hypothetically, a van nomad could take two three-month-long seasonal jobs a year and live comfortably, while having the other half of the year open for adventure. That sounds like a sweet life, right? It puts the two weeks of vacation servile society benefit to shame. But there are other avenues available to van nomads, like creating self-liberational media. Believe it or not, van nomadism is kind of trending. 
you could leverage that to make some additional income by starting a YouTube channel, a website, blog. You could write a book and sell it, whatever. One cautionary tale, YouTube has been known to shut down and demonetize channels for no reason at all. Get while the getting's good, as the saying goes, but do not rely upon it. The smart Vanuans will never rely upon one single source of income anyways. Digital nomadism, more generally, is probably the more popular way van nomads make money on the road. This typically consists of freelancing or an entrepreneurial business of some sort. Do you have any marketable skills that you could leverage? Think graphic design, website design, coding and development, online marketing, or a consulting biz. These are in demand, and businesses and corporations often hire freelancers at higher rates. It's a lot cheaper than hiring formal employees. There are three other potential options I learned about from other van nomads. Apparently, individuals have had some success with posting Gigs Wanted ads on Craigslist and Facebook, option one and two. If you're rolling into town and need to make some quick cash, you might try that. I've heard the money isn't always great and it can sometimes turn into tedious odd jobs, but regardless, it's an option if you're in the crunch. The third option is actually quite incredible for van nomads. Delivery or driving services like Uber, Uber Eats, Postmates, etc. If you're ever in a crunch and need to make some money, find a larger city and do some delivering. As long as you have a smartphone, you're almost always in position to make money. And that's huge. Quitting your job in the servile society can surely be daunting. It can put your life in question and cause lots of stress. But it doesn't need to. The van nomad life is quite cheap, and there are seemingly endless ways to make money on the road. The only limitations are your creativity and imagination. Chapter 6, Part 5. Jurisdictional Arbitrage, Legal Intercises, and Tricks for Van Nomads. Jurisdictional arbitrage is defined as the practice of taking advantage of discrepancies between competing legal jurisdictions. This is generally practiced between countries and nation-states, but it can be applied here in so-called America as well. Similarly, legal intercises are defined as gray areas within the law that can be used to violate the spirit of the law while simultaneously keeping to the letter of the law. Take my last place of residency, the communist state of Illinois. This hellhole is most well-known for being home to the former crime capital of the world, crippling business regulations, a higher price to pay for anything you want to do, and a mass exodus of citizens into other legal jurisdictions. So what sort of jurisdictional arbitrage methods and intercises are available to me and other van nomads? A legal mailing address, vehicle registration, and residency. The state of South Dakota must seriously be hurting for revenue. In most states, the process for these things is difficult, expensive, time-consuming, and there are always hurdles to jump through. Thankfully, South Dakota wants your money so bad they will jump through the hurdles for you, making it easy to become or remain legally compliant. The first item to discuss is the legal mailing address, as this is a requirement for all of the others. One of the logistical issues with a nomadic lifestyle is mail forwarding. You might not always know where you're going to be, how long you're going to be there, and if what's being delivered can be earmarked for general delivery. Enter yourbestaddress.com. For $189 a year, you can set up custom shipping schedules. For example, if you're going to be in Denver, Colorado for a few weeks, working a short-term gig, you simply put in a request to have your mail forwarded there. There are other features, such as $1 handling fees per shipment, the lowest out there, free junk mail sorting, email notification for outgoing mail, no hidden postage fees, and even a couple other, more minor ones. Better yet, this isn't a mere post office box. This is a legal, physical mailing address, and the first step for the other indices that this website offers. Next is vehicle registration. Here in Illinois, it costs $128 for me to register my 1998 Mercury Grand Marquis yearly. In South Dakota, it's 45 and you can mail in the necessary forms using the address you signed up with before. You don't even have to physically go to the state. Here's the process. Application for motor vehicle and registration. An original title or manufacturer's statement of origin, if new, properly transferred to the applicant. A bill of sale, 
sales contract or other purchase order, vehicle weight, empty of course, a copy of your current driver's license, and the current odometer reading. Obviously, the bureaucratic bullshit sucks, but it's something you'll have to deal with regardless. That's not all, though. Here in Illinois, the excise tax on new or used vehicles is 6.25%. In South Dakota, it's 4%, with no vehicle inspections or emissions tests. Let's say you decide to buy a brand new Chevy Express work van, which comes out to about $30,000. In Illinois, the excise tax would be $1,875. In South Dakota, it would be $1,200. So... Utilizing yourbestaddress.com could net you a savings of 758 bucks on the above example. It may not seem like a whole lot, but why wouldn't you do it if the process was the same or even easier? Next is residency. Now, obviously, as Vanuans, the goal would be to avoid becoming a citizen of any government, but unfortunately, that's not very practical. Therefore, since most everyone will choose residency in some state, why not choose the one with the most legal benefits? Become a South Dakota resident in under 24 hours. Once you've obtained your physical address, you simply complete the required government forms. Gross! Blah! Blah! Yuck. Stay one night in a hotel, RV park, or an Airbnb, and trudge on down to the South Dakota Department of Motor Vehicles office. The local bureaucrat will ask you for the receipt from where you stayed. You'll provide one document proving your identity, date of birth, and lawful status, one document verifying your social security number, and you're done. You're now a resident of South Dakota, and it took less than a day. And you aren't even required to live in South Dakota. Hell, you don't even have to visit it again if you don't want to. So what makes South Dakota advantageous in terms of legal intercises? Well, they put together this list. Becoming a resident of South Dakota is simple and painless. You will pay no state income taxes, as there is none. There's no inheritance tax. There's no personal property tax. There's no annual vehicle inspections. We have low-cost registration fees and only a 4% sales tax. Compared to the communist states of Illinois, those benefits could certainly be beneficial. Now that all the governmental nonsense is out of the way, I'd like to conclude this section by discussing three tips and tricks that might help you in pursuit of this lifestyle. First is hygiene. How do van nomads stay clean? Well, some van nomads have showers aboard their rigs. Others are in the wilderness enough that taking a dip in the creek suffices. But almost all van nomads have a membership to Planet Fitness. It really is a no-brainer. For 21 bucks a month, you have access to their showers and workout facilities, and Planet Fitnesses are everywhere. The regular hot showers are great, sure, but what if it rains for a few days straight and you're cooped up in your van? Cabin fever is not outside the realm of possibility. Being able to get out of your van to work out would seemingly be a major blessing. But that's not all. With your Planet Fitness membership, you'll have access to unlimited use of hydro massage, unlimited use of massage chairs, free haircuts, free Wi-Fi, among other things. So you could do your morning van life vlog, go work out and shower, upload a video to YouTube, and get a haircut so I'd recommend you pony up that 21 bucks a month. You'll be glad you did. Next is a AAA membership. If you aren't familiar, this yearly subscription service offers roadside assistance, emergency battery service, fuel delivery, lockout services, tire services, and more. They offer three different tiers. Classic, 58 bucks a year, plus $93 a year, and Premier, $123 a year. As an example, let's take a look at their mid-level tier. For your subscription, you qualify for up to four 100-mile tows, emergency starting, battery service, flat tire service, fuel delivery, vehicle locksmith service, extrication and winching, car travel interruption, and emergency check cashing, and more. Breakdowns happen. They're inevitable. Don't leave yourself stranded, forced to pay for a tow that will inevitably cost more than a yearly AAA membership. Lastly is medical. Clearly, without a full-time 9-to-5 job, it's safe to say that most van nomads go without health insurance. 
So how do van nomads get dental work done, medical care, or medical supplies? This was one of the major hurdles for me. Without health care, there's no way in hell I could afford my diabetes supplies, mostly thanks to the fantastic socialistic health care system here in so-called America. So how did I overcome this obstacle? I posted in a couple of van nomad groups on fascist book, and lo and behold, there are other diabetic van nomads. And within minutes, the biggest hurdle was out of the way. And the answer is Algodones, Mexico. Algodones is smack dab on the border of Mexico and Arizona, a short 25-minute drive from Yuma. Algodones has been featured in such publications as Forbes magazine for their high-quality medical tourism industry. Many van nomads have documented their trips there, and it basically looks like an American city, albeit without the ridiculous barriers to entry. English is the primary language, so you won't have problems communicating with your dentist, pharmacist, or doctor. So what about the cost? Believe it or not, you can get the same prescriptions and medical care as you would here in America, but for a far cheaper cost, even without health insurance. Ah, the freer market. As another alternative, you can obtain health care without going through an employer here in the United States. For example, I recently found out that I can get basically the same health insurance I had when gainfully employed for just a little more a month. 245 bucks a month to be exact, versus 150 or so. Clearly, I'd rather not have to pony up that monthly payment, but it beats the hell out of paying full price for diabetes supplies. I'm sure I'll learn a bunch of other tips and tricks once I hit the road, but these are the most common ones. So why should you consider van nomadism for your first Vanu lifestyle change? It's the easiest lifestyle change available. Unlike sailing the open ocean, almost everyone has experience driving a car. Sure, there are some obstacles and hurdles, but they aren't too much to deal with for the dedicated freedom pioneer. It's one of the cheapest lifestyles out there. Recall the average monthly cost for this lifestyle, 500 to 1000 bucks a month. Most people pay that much or more for their stationary dwelling in the servile society. With that expense out of the way, this enables you to work less and utilize that time doing whatever you decide to do. Also consider that when individuals lose their jobs or their homes, what are they sometimes relegated to doing? Living out of their car. Now, obviously, this scenario isn't by choice, but that alone should really illuminate the fact that this lifestyle is extremely cheap. It's immensely freeing and rewarding. If you could make all the money you needed and more working half of the year and doing whatever you wanted for the rest of the year, what if your scenery and front porch view could change from the desert one day to the ocean the next? What if you weren't tied down to a fixed location for years on end working a job you hate to pay for a house that you basically, likely, only sleep in? Better yet, what if all of those things were well within your reach? Van nomadism is a terrific interim lifestyle. For me, the dream is still to find freedom on the open ocean, but I'm not going to wait around to be free. Therefore, van nomadism serves as a great interim lifestyle. In Vanu Book 2, Letters from Rayo, he writes, I have never maintained that motorized nomadism is a panacea. I did choose it for and have found it to be an excellent interim lifestyle for someone still extensively involved in the servile society. Even if your end goal is something different, why not begin to live free in the here and now? The modern van nomad community is incredible, and you don't have to do this alone. As I said, van nomadism is kind of trending right now. One YouTube search will garner months of content. But this van nomad community does not only exist in the digital realm, it also exists in the physical realm. This is one of the things I'm most looking forward to. Many of these folks are Vanuan. They just have never heard of the word. These are individuals who, for whatever reason, decided that a normal life in the servile society was not for them. Instead of political crusading and begging the masters to change the system, they pursued direct action and created the life they desired themselves. Even if we have differing economic opinions or whatever, these people are serious, and I can't wait to meet them. To give you an idea of how many van nomads are out there, let me tell you about RTR, the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. 
Every January in Quartzsite, Arizona, van nomads from all across America meet up for a week in the desert to mingle, learn from each other, and get help in building out their vans. In 2018, some 4,000 nomads were in attendance. I'm hoping to attend in 2020. By that time, there will likely be well over 5,000 nomads in attendance. To conclude, I'll end with a quote from a nomad who wrote into Innovator in March of 1968. So far, I have been too busy to travel extensively or to seek out especially attractive campsites. But already I have lived many exquisite days and evenings at beaches, mountains, and forests. I'm still learning the way of a modern nomad, but already I am free. You're listening to Vanu, a strategy for self-liberation by Shane Radliff, published by Liberty Under Attack Publications. For more great books, privacy tools, and resources, just visit libertyunderattack.com. Want to see more productions like these? Find ways to support our efforts by visiting libertyunderattack.com and vanupodcast.com. Thanks, and cheers from the Free Republic. Now back to the book. Chapter 7. Wilderness Vanu Wilderness Vanu was Rayo and Roberta's preferred Vanu lifestyle after they discovered van nomadism was not freeing enough for them. It is the most radical and one of the most difficult, too. Your average individual in the servile society would likely be dead within a couple of weeks if they were airdropped into the middle of the wilderness. Since most folks would never seriously consider this as a viable option, I'm not going to spend much time on it. And for those that do, Rayo's Vanu publications will be far more worthwhile than any attempt I could make to explain it. Below is an article by Rayo from Vanu Life, March 1973, titled Smumans, the Super Hobos. Herein, you'll discover how such a nomadic wilderness lifestyle could be achieved, the various Vanu home bases involved, how interaction could be facilitated between other Smumans, and how various Vanu lifestyle changes can be combined, among other things. Enjoy! Smumans, the Super Hobos, by Rayo. Smume stands for Seclusion and Mobility Using Multiplicity. Smume has some features of and integrates with troglodyte, foot nomad, urban anonymity, and vehicle nomadic ways. But it differs in overall living pattern and equipment use. Smume has similarities to traditional ways as diverse as hobos, Eskimos, fur trappers with several overnight cabins, and wealthy families with several conventional houses. Many Smume lifestyles are possible, but all involve migration among various abodes. The abodes are usually simple, inexpensive, semi-permanent, and widely separated. A number of towns of a region are used, in secession, as trading outposts. Smume offers, in part, the wide-ranging mobility and anonymity of vehicle nomadism with the privacy and safety of troglodytism. While Smume is complicated to describe, at least with conventional concepts, Smume is easier to implement than any other lifestyle I presently know of which offers comparable vanu. Smume is made economical by the low cost of plastic film and second-hand utensils. A Smume family migrates between its abodes, probably seasonally. Less often an abode is moved to a new site within the same area or phased out in favor of a new abode developed elsewhere. Most of the abodes are located at least a quarter mile and not more than 10 miles from a road. The road is preferably either a highway or a trail without habitation along it or at its intersection with the highway. Most abodes cannot be reached by motor vehicles. There are several hitchhiking routes from each abode to one or more such roads. Each route reaches the road at a different place and at a different out-of-sight residence. At least one route from each abode ends in a parking spot which is out of sight of the road and rarely used suitable for unloading supplies. A few hundred yards into the brush from each parking spot is a stash for low-value supplies awaiting backpacking to the abode. The supplies are stored in drums for protection from animals and weather. Hiking routes are irregular and cannot be followed by someone not familiar with them. 
Each route is used only a few times a year, so it doesn't receive much wear. In Siskiyou region, abode sites are selected so that highway distance between is typically 100 miles. The separation is determined by the distance between major trade towns and the living patterns of conventional people. People rarely go 100 miles to work, shop, or socialize. Overland hiking distances between abodes is less, typically 30 to 40 miles. The abodes all lying within the same mountain range. A family has no single trading outpost. From each abode, a different town, or better yet, two or three in alteration are used for shopping, receiving forwarded mail, and perhaps temporary employment. The towns so used are fairly large, at least 5,000 people within shopping range, and they are located on major highways and thus accustomed to many visitors. After living at one abode a few months and making trips alternatively to the nearest suitable towns, which preferably lie in opposite directions, the family moves to another abode, 100 miles away, and makes trips to different towns, and so forth. They do not return to the first abode and the corresponding trading outposts until a year has passed. If a family has six abodes, 12 trading towns, and makes trips to town twice a month, one member is in each town twice a year, not often enough to be distinguishable from the many thousand travelers who stop briefly. The family is probably not limited to a fixed schedule or route. If they encounter trouble in one town, they do not return to that area for several years. Meanwhile, developing a new abode elsewhere. In an emergency, they can hike overland between abodes without using roads or going to populated areas. All possessions of a Smeum family have one or more of the following characteristics. Inexpensive, expendable, small, used seasonally. Inexpensive items are duplicated and left at each abode. These might include polyethylene film and rope for rigging tents, bedding, cooking stove, utensils, extra clothes, and drums for storage while abode is not occupied. Bedding, clothes, and utensils are scavenged at dumps or purchased secondhand. Total cost of stationary items at warm weather abode is probably less than $50. Expendable supplies include food staples, soap, writing paper, kerosene, and propane. These are ordinarily left at an abode until consumed. Some small but valuable items move with the family, such things as a watch, transistor radio, binoculars, handgun, radiation detector, camera, medical kit, sewing kit, and often used reference books. Seasonal items are grouped according to use at specific abodes. These include most books, tools, and construction materials. Each abode is somewhat specialized for the activities performed there and the season that it is used. Abodes might include summer camp. This might be more remote than other abodes since there will usually not be snow and swollen rivers to hinder access. If foraging and Vanu horticulture are accomplished in that area, books, tools, and preservation equipment are stored there. A plastic tent and mosquito netting are sufficient shelter. Winter abode. This may be a semi-underground structure or a large foam hut plus a plastic tent. Since there is little warm working space, much reading and writing are done here. Most books are stored there. Electric abode. A small generator, probably hydroelectric, powers a sewing machine, electronic equipment, or any other gear requiring electricity, but not bulky imports. Relevant books and material are stored there. Edge place. This is for work involving bulky imported materials, such as carpentry, and is the one abode accessible to vehicles. Major work on any vehicle is performed there, also any work which, because of space required, noise or smells, is not easily vanued. Edge Place is most likely on fairly secluded private land leased from a friendly landowner. An old van or house trailer may be parked there to provide sheltered work and storage space. Edge Place is much less vanued than other abodes, so work requiring much privacy is not performed there and any family members especially threatened, such as slave-aged children during that season, remain elsewhere. A minimally furnished van may be used for shelter if one or more members occasionally go into that society to earn money. When not in use, it is probably parked on private land. 
perhaps at Edge Place. A friend who may be outside the Siskiyou region provides a permanent mailing address. The friend accumulates mail, bundles it, then sends it as a parcel, as directed. If possible, the family makes arrangements with trustworthy local people in each town to receive parcels. If not, the parcels come general delivery. A legal home address for driver's license and vehicle registration, if needed, is probably arranged in a large city outside the region and separate from the mailing address. Means of transportation vary. One smewman may not have any vehicle. E. Hitchhikes for mail and light supplies. Also for migration between abodes. E. Hires a van for pickup. Preferably a transient to haul heavier supplies. Another smewman may use a motorcycle for all transport. This will be a bike with enough power for a highway, yet light enough to manhandle into hiding places. Perhaps a 250cc trail bike. Still another may have a van or camper for hauling supplies as well as for work excursions. E will also have a motorbike or else hitch rides, since places suitable for long-time parking will seldom be convenient to unloading spots. Smewmans, like other Vanuans, obtain money in ways which minimize time and involvement with the Servile Society. One may have a line of special services or products E sells through merchants in the town E visits. Another may have a mail-order enterprise. Someone with a highly paid skill may journey to a distant city for temporary employment. But most, at least at first, will probably depend on day labor in nearby towns and seasonal crop work. Although this is low-paying, a smewman's expenses can be very low, so not many a day's works are needed. An individual or family without slave-age children can be flexible about outside employment, working together or separately at any time of the year. A family with children is more constrained. Perhaps during the school year, the children remain at a secluded site. Then, during summer, the whole family does crop work and any other activities involving that society. If asked for addresses by employers or bludgies, a smewman gives her legal home address. If asked for local addresses, E says E is visited by some friends, location vaguely defined. A smewman can be opener with outsiders than he can be with more stationary wilderness Vanuans. In some instances, E may be able to socialize with local non-Vanuans, E can even say to friends, E is camping back in the woods, knowing E will have moved on to other woods before the word gets very far. For a smewman, the whole Siskiyou region becomes, in a sense, a single, widely dispersed city of several hundred thousand people. Smeum offers much of the anonymity of metropolis without the pollution or nuclear danger. Assets are dispersed and cannot be destroyed by a single misfortune. Comparing Smeum to full-time van living, most time is spent in or around abodes which are concealed away from roads in rugged, brushy areas, rarely, if ever, penetrated. With our van, the greatest mean time to harassment we have achieved is one or two years, whereas a single small tent we can easily achieve 20 years mean time to harassment. With more work and care, 200 years. Interpretation, if there are 200 such camps, an average of one a year will be discovered. This is while a camp is set up. Torn down and stuffed in drums under bushes, chance of discovery is even lower. We have had enough stash tents in enough situations to have confidence in the 20-year figure. One-year MTH is adequate for someone not especially threatened who wants peace and quiet. It is not sufficient for slave-age children, someone without acceptable ID, or for most kinds of alternate economy enterprises. A serious disadvantage of smium for some. Activities must be accomplished at certain places and in certain seasons, rather than when one is in the mood. Planning and bookkeeping are essential. Life is more structured than with everything in one place. But the structure is chosen by oneself, not imposed by outsiders. One might initiate a smeum lifestyle by exploring a region on foot and hitchhiking, using lightweight camping gear, then gradually build equipment and supplies at the most desirable spots. Or a van nomad might develop a string of vehicle squat spots, then use these as bases for scouting. On the other hand, 
From a smume lifestyle, one can become, say, a troglodyte by further developing one abode and phasing out the others. Like any new lifestyle, smume should be begun when one is not in immediate danger, when one has time to experiment and can survive a few mistakes. Chapter 8. Minimalist Sailboating 99.9% of land here on planet Earth has been laid claim to by some government, which would suggest that there aren't many places self-liberators can go to be free. When it comes to stationary dwellings on land, that's certainly true, especially considering the fee-simple system of land ownership here in at least America, if not every other nation or country as well. There really is no such thing as private property when it comes to land ownership. The state truly is your landlord. If you don't believe me, try not paying your yearly rent, otherwise known as property taxes. You'd be lucky to only have the landlord come and knock it. Not to mention other issues that may arise with owning land, such as nuisance abatement, which is extremely relevant if one is going to be off-grid homesteading, the difficulty of picking up and moving if necessary, and obviously, the expensive cost of stationary dwellings, among other things. That said, 71% of this planet is made up of wide open ocean. This translates to over 332,519,000 cubic miles of water, as estimated by the U.S. Geological Survey. And yet, in large part, humans have yet to even begin utilizing the seemingly endless possibilities abound. As Rayo said, if your state of anchorage becomes intolerable, don't waste energy in extended public criticism or conflict. Apply your free market principles by setting sail for sunnier waters. Rayo, Innovator, March 1967. Let's begin by discussing the arbitrary boundaries selected and enforced by current nation-states. Contiguous Zones A band of water extending from the outer edge of the territorial sea up to 24 nautical miles, 27.6 land miles, from the baseline, within which a state can exert limited control for the purpose of preventing or punishing infringement of its customs, fiscal, immigration, or sanitary laws and regulations. Exclusive Economic Zone extends from the outer limit of the territorial sea to a maximum of 200 nautical miles, 230.2 miles, from the territorial sea baseline. A coastal nation has control of all economic resources within its exhaustive economic zone. However, it cannot prohibit passage or loitering above, on, or under the surface of the sea. Reason would dictate, then, that as long as Ivanowin is at least 24.1 nautical miles off the coast of an existing nation or country, they are, for the most part, outside of any government's jurisdiction. That is, unless they are mining minerals off the ocean floor, attempting to deliver or manufacture nuclear weapons, or if they are part of an international drug smuggling ring. As the description said above, a government cannot stop you from crossing their EEZ. Obviously, as Vanuans, we know not to rely upon these legal intercises, but it's necessary information to possess regardless. All of that said, when would sailing Vanuans have to deal with the coercion of the bludgies? When an individual is beginning their journey, namely when they are obtaining their flag of convenience, in short, international law requires a ship to be registered in a country, or else you'll be regarded as a pirate. When an individual is entering the port of a country, I don't know what this process consists of, but there will be dealings with bludgies. They might search your boat. Outside of those two scenarios, there shouldn't be any other interactions with government, especially if you're spending most of your time on the high seas. Case Study City Jim to Captain Jim Jim Smith spent his entire childhood and most of his 30s in the communist hellhole known as New York City. He graduated with an engineering degree from Columbia University, only to end up as a contractor for Boeing, putting together the next design for the military's F-35 fighter jets. And he truly did love his work. I made it, he thought to himself, 
I'm 24 years old, and I'm pulling in six figures. Fast forward a few years, and he is happily married to his wife, Katie. They actually met each other at a mosh pit in a killer Veil of Maya show. In a normal context, the way they met probably would have been considered spousal abuse. But in this circumstance, it was love at first accidental elbow to Katie's face. They're in a great financial situation for their age, statist servile society standards, that is. But they aren't positive if they want to rear offspring or not. They decide to put it off for a few years. Jim is still plugging away at Boeing. He received numerous commendations for his superior work, but they just aren't doing much for him anymore. The law of diminishing returns in action, maybe? Not so much. When he was younger, he didn't much care what the product of his labor was used for. He didn't even think about it. He was there to collect his weekly paycheck so he could go chase women at nightclubs, and that was it. Then the Bradley Manning leaks happened. He saw the realities of war firsthand and realized that his job was far more than just schematics and mathematics. He was producing weapons of mass murder. It was then that he knew he had to make a change. He requested an internal reassignment to private sector work, but it was denied. So, he quit, unsure as to what his future may hold. When he went home, he vented his frustrations and outrage to an understanding Katie. Like most, she really didn't have any idea what was going on in the geopolitical realm, but she could see that this was eating Jim up inside, and rightfully so. She decided to retreat to her office to think. After some thorough research on the internet that evening, Katie came across a podcast episode titled The Anti-War Rayo, released by two folks, Shane and Jason. They laid down in their bed and listened together before they went to sleep. This was the start of their journey as Vanuans. Over the course of the next few weeks, they scoured all of the content currently available on this freedom strategy called Vanu and this really interesting guy named Rayo. They sold their house, got rid of 98% of their belongings, bought a brand new Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van, converted it into a liveaboard rig, and traveled across the U.S. for the next few years. They enjoyed the van nomad lifestyle, but realized it wasn't exactly where they would like to be. They recalled Rayo's quote about setting sail for sunnier waters and decided to invest in a 49-foot Juneau Sun Odyssey sailboat. Since neither of them have any experience in this realm, they took some boating classes and paid an experienced skipper to take them out a few times. They took it slow, but they were adept in no time. After a couple of years on the water, they decided they wanted to have a child. They were only getting older, and the years were running out. Surprisingly enough, they had twins, Alice and Frank. After ensuring the babies were healthy and spending some time settling in as parents, they set sail as a family for the very first time. When Alice and Frank get a little older, Jim and Katie plan on unschooling them. Case study. From skipping school to skipper. Nathan Scott somehow graduated high school this year, and like most high school age kids, he has no idea what he wants to do with his life. He's in a more interesting situation, though, compared to his peers. When he was a freshman, he came across the Bad Quaker podcast, hosted by a guy named Ben Stone. Ben introduced Nathan to the concept of anarchism, a label he now proudly proclaims. His parents think he's just trying to be cool, but he has extremely good philosophical, ethical, economic, and practical reasons for his hatred of the state. And he's passionate about the idea of freedom. He's a regular listener to the Vanu podcast, and he knows higher-level indoctrination, college, is not for him. Hell, he knows a normal 9-to-5 servile society job would drive him mad. He's considered van nomadism as an interim lifestyle, but he agrees with Rayo. The strategy's reliance on slave tags is unsettling. So where does that leave young Nathan? He wants to set sail for sunnier waters. He has no idea what he's doing, he has no money to do it, but he's made his goal. And as a dedicated freedom pioneer, he won't take no for an answer. Thankfully, his young age means that he has no debt to take care of, no affairs to get in order, i.e. selling a house, and no one dependent upon him. He can safely take some risks, especially considering he's on his parents' health insurance for another eight years. 
Living on the West Coast, he knows that there are occasionally positions open at marinas or docks for maintenance, service, and janitorial duties. At least, he thinks to himself, this will be a start. I can learn the basics and go from there. So he applies for an open dock position, and he gets it. The seasons change as six months go by, and he notices a boat that has not moved a lick since he began to work. It's a 42-foot, 1992 Laguna TPI sailboat. Overall, it's in super rough condition and could use a lot of work. He goes to his boss and inquires further. It's been abandoned for six years. You can have it for a thousand bucks if you get it the hell out of my marina. The now Captain Scott took the deal and began to refurbish and restore this once exquisite sailboat. He gave it a deep cleaning, replaced the propeller, stripped most of the electrical as there was quite a bit of exposed wire, and modified the living quarters. While he restored the boat, his boss took him for a little sailing adventures on a similar boat so he could learn the ropes. He learned how to navigate the ocean, operate the levers and pulleys that raised and lowered the sails, the necessary sailing terminology, and even got a couple experiences in nasty storms. During the process of restoration, Nathan lived minimally and frugally, saving as much money as he possibly could. Thankfully, due to his young age, he had not accumulated too much stuff, and therefore there wasn't much to get rid of. All of his belongings fit snugly aboard. His goal was to have a year or two of income saved up so that he could focus his efforts on self-liberational media, i.e. a YouTube channel, writing a book, etc. After a couple of years of hard work, Libertas was ready to set sail, and so was he. He charted his journey southwards in the direction of Ecuador, and truly began his life as a Vanuan. And it was a good life. He soon learned that boat maintenance is time-consuming and can be expensive, but he made it work. He chronicled his adventures in the form of self-liberational media. He was unable to afford the ridiculously expensive high-seas internet and opted instead to record a batch of podcasts each month and return to land to upload them. He utilized WordPress schedule post function, which allowed him to keep his audience tuned into a steady stream of content. For paying subscribers, he even gave them the opportunity to sail with him. It's a great opportunity for him to fund his adventures and a reward well worth paying for his listeners. As he became more competent, he realized that he wanted to return to the statist servile society less and less for import-export. He theorized about the possibility of somehow making himself more self-sufficient aboard Libertas. He thought of hauling some sort of a floating platform behind him which he would load with fresh, organic vegetables. After further consideration, he realized that was probably a no-go. He recalled Rayo's discussion on something called cryptoculture, or small, hidden patches of food which could be harvested. What if I grow my own food on an uninhabited ocean island? So he sailed around and found the ideal candidate. Now he was able to provide 100% of his food himself fresh vegetables on the island, and fresh seafood from the ocean. As is the case with any Vanuan, he became more and more competent as the years went on. And from his self-liberational media, he was recruiting people in droves to make radical lifestyle changes in pursuance of freedom. He learned firsthand the accuracy of an oft-said proverb, a rising tide raises all boats, making money on the open ocean. It's worth a few notes on ways to make money while sailing full-time. Back in 1966, Carrie Thornley published a series of articles sharing the same title as the next section. That will be the source of most of this information. For smaller boats, there aren't a whole lot of options. The few that come to mind are self-liberational media, digital nomadism, and consulting. For larger boats, the options expand quite drastically. Thornley elucidates, Charter sailing tourists in colorful parts of the world is a good way to make money while living at sea but it's not the only way in which a large boat can serve as a tool of production. Simple freedom from police harassment for group activities, such as wild parties, clandestine political meetings, illegal medical operations, is a valuable condition which a boat captain can provide for a fee. In addition, he can run cargoes to out-of-the-way places, unserviced by major shippers. 
provide transportation to escaping political refugees, and undertake speculative anti-state ventures, such as smuggling of American cigarettes into Spain, where high terrorists make such operations, however dangerous, extremely profitable. Smuggling opportunities in a world of anti-libertarian trade policies, in fact, are legion. One can take diamonds out of Africa and South America, run arms to rebels in Cuba, land used auto and refrigerator parts in Mexico, bring gold into certain near-totalitarian countries where ownership of some is unlawful, all for life, liberty, and property. Obviously, I would never advocate you do anything illegal. If you decide to pursue any of the above methods, you do so at your own risk and of your own accord. There are even larger applications to this strategy, which could bring in a substantial amount of money, but carry a lot more risk. Let's run through a hypothetical example here. Assuming that there is somehow a massively funded anarchist organization, the Maritime Mesians, or TMM. TMM, an anarchist organization of roughly 20 members made rich from digital currencies, see an opportunity for huge profit in the open ocean. A floating, mobile, sovereign, free port of sorts, governments have this tendency to regulate everything into oblivion which halts innovation, increases the barriers to entry, and makes a previously affordable product or service extraordinarily expensive. There is no industry more applicable here than Big Pharma. Imagine the possibilities of an unhampered, unregulated medical industry in the open ocean. Think revolutionary medical research, no taxes or regulations, and an actually affordable product. So, TMM decided to buy a large decommissioned aircraft carrier from the Navy. Where else would you get one of those? for $2.8 million, actual price of one for sale in 2016, and outfitted as a giant marketplace. To keep themselves out of the line of fire of nation states, they take the following precautions. Nuclear weapons are banned from sale. The location of aircraft carrier changes often, although always in international waters, 200 plus miles off of any established coast. The entrepreneurs place a limit on the amount of drugs able to be purchased and transported elsewhere. All the state has to do is claim that the confiscated drugs came from there and they'd be at risk to face the wrath of the state. In addition to just being a marketplace, there are also medical research labs, medical operation rooms, a nightclub, and a luxurious restaurant. The two big difficulties TMM faces is, one, nation-state interference, and two, finding customers to patronize the aircraft carrier. I present this example more so as a thought exercise rather than a serious suggestion. Obviously, this isn't in line with minimalist sailboating. We likely won't see any of this come to fruition anytime soon. If you refer back to the meantime to harassment, something like this would certainly be H-level Vanu. As far as I know, there's no way to hide an aircraft carrier. Higher risk, higher reward. The Permanent Floating Voluntary Society When I tell the story of Rayo, one of the first retorts I often receive is, I don't want to live in isolation. For the most part, I don't either. But it would be wise to begin your journey as a solo Vanuan unless you already have a freemate, significant other, children, etc., Rail provides some wise advice on the subject. Many a man will say, and sincerely believe, that he wants to Vanu just as soon as he finds the right woman, or the right group, to do it with. But he doesn't want to do it alone. However, how do you, and he, know that he can do it, until he does it for a substantial time? If he can't stand living alone, if he soon gets bored with himself, chances are he will soon get bored with you too. So, suggest that he do it alone for a year or so before trying to link up. So let's say you've been living aboard your sailboat for a year now, and you're loving it. What sort of possibilities exist for the social Vanuin? The answer? A mobile intentional community. Or, as per the title, a permanent floating voluntary society. For those new to the concept, an intentional community can be defined as a planned community designed from the start to have a high degree of social cohesion and teamwork. 
The members typically hold a common social, political, religious, or spiritual vision and often follow an alternative lifestyle. Similar to a van nomad caravan, the idea is to still have the workings and culture of a small society, division of labor, labor specialization, the ability to pool together resources, etc. You may be lucky enough to have a handful of families ready to set sail around the same time as you are. If so, you've already got the fixings for this community to develop. If you're heading out solo, without any potential mates, then it may be a little more difficult, especially when it comes to the stringent philosophical requirements for Ivanuin. Your pool of potential candidates shrinks. Rayo discusses the advantages of this strategy in Vanu, the search for personal freedom. The Voluntary Floating Association has some advantages over the free hamlet in the hills. Not only will anchors be lowered where state interference is minimal, the very mobility discourages interventions. For instance, state school officials seldom molest the children of transients. Another blessing for parents, the irrationalist coercivist influence of outside peer groups and mass communication media is considerably reduced. Differences of objectives and conflicts of personality, which may disrupt an immobile, intentional community, are easily resolved. The dissenters weigh anchor and a community can develop by easy steps and without formal direction. No would-be founder need acquire a large tract of land, uncertain as to market demand or the response of the state. From the minimalist sailboating vlogs I follow, it seems that these associations tend to happen spontaneously. Hopefully you'll have similar luck. In conclusion, minimalist sailboating is a terrific option for Vanuans. It does have some additional hurdles compared to van nomadism, but the increase in freedom is quite substantial. Instead of driving on government roads, you sail the high seas, where there really is no government. It's worth noting that sailing can be rather difficult. Here are some recommendations I'd make for someone interested in pursuing this lifestyle. Test out the lifestyle before committing. Life on sea is a whole hell of a lot different than life on land. I'd recommend taking a hitch sailing trip. It's hitchhiking only on the water. It's actually a rather safe practice, especially if you coordinate it in the fascist book group Sailboat Hitchhikers and Crew Connection. Many of those folks know each other and can vouch for other members. It's worth noting the importance of making sure you're compatible with the captain and his crew, if applicable. You don't want to be stuck in close quarters with folks you can't stand. It might sully your experience. Take your time and do your homework. The ocean can be a tranquil, enjoyable experience, but it can also be quite treacherous. The idea is self-liberation, not accidental suicide. Be willing to pay an experienced captain to teach you the ways of sailing. I don't know how much it costs, but I guarantee it's cheaper than going out as a novice and sinking a boat, or worse. The floating voluntary society begins with a population of one. Will you set sail for sunnier waters? You're listening to Vanu, a strategy for self-liberation by Shane Radliff, published by Liberty Under Attack Publications. For more great books, privacy tools, and resources, just visit libertyunderattack.com. Want to see more productions like these? Find ways to support our efforts by visiting libertyunderattack.com and vanupodcast.com. Thanks, and cheers from the Free Republic. Now back to the book. Chapter 9. Perpetual Traveling In the panarchistic sense, governments around the world compete with each other for tax cattle. They'll offer different incentives, tax breaks, and additional privileges, such as marijuana decriminalization or gun ownership, to convince individuals to relocate to their jurisdiction. Sure, the ideal situation would be no affiliation with the world's most successful mass murderer known as government, but again, Vanu is based on reality, not on how we, as Vanuans, wish things to be. 
That's the prerogative of the political crusaders. As Rayo said, become internationally mobile. Stop being a captive audience for the real-life black comedies of a particular gang of clowns turned goons and begin making real market choices between states. It is true that van nomadism and minimalist sailboating, generally speaking, are methods of perpetual traveling, but it's worth expanding upon the subject further. There are a couple of different applications to examine, but we should cover a few preliminary notes first. Residential taxation, territorial taxation, and the five-flag theory. Residential taxation is a bitch, and it's a major reason why many expats rescind their United States citizenship. Reason being, the IRS claims taxes on any money you make, regardless of whether it is in Spain, Antarctica, Mars, or anywhere else in the Milky Way galaxy. Territorial taxation, on the other hand, means that you only owe your government of residence income tax if you make money inside their jurisdiction. So what is the five flag theory? It's a way for an individual to not be considered a legal resident of any of the countries they spend time in or operate in, and therefore is a way to avoid the legal obligations that come with it. The flags are as follows. 1. Passport and citizenship in a country that does not tax money earned outside of the country or attempt to control actions outside of its jurisdiction. 2. Legal residence in a tax haven. 3. Business base where one earns money, ideally somewhere with low corporate tax rates. 4. Asset haven, where one keeps their money, ideally somewhere with low taxation of passive income and capital gains. 5. Playgrounds, where one spends money, ideally somewhere with low consumption taxes. This is the most popular strategy perpetual travelers use. Let's take a look at a couple of case studies to see how this lifestyle could be developed. Case Study Victor the Vagabond Victor Cruz was born in Canada in the mid-70s. He worked as a developer in the technology realm for 20 years until the boom of the internet. He started a couple online businesses and made a bunch of money in short order. He'd always wanted to live a life of travel, but had never possessed the funds to do so. Now, he could. Victor sold his home and all of his belongings, sans what he could fit into a suitcase. He did some research into what countries he might like to utilize for the five-flag theory and got his new legal affairs in order. He traveled around for a while, getting a feel for different countries to see where he would like to spend most of his time. He found that France, Ecuador, and Brazil were his absolute favorite places. But most countries only allow tourists to remain there for so long without applying for a tourist visa. Well, considering he's a perpetually traveling Vanuan, he always relocates before having to go through that process. He finds that he typically rents houses wherever he goes. Sure, he may not be building equity, but it beats the hell out of paying a ton of taxes each year. Since he flies everywhere, he does have a few run-ins a year with the airport bludgies. He dislikes the invasions of privacy and the coercion, but he feels it's a price worth paying to live the life that he truly wants to live. Case Study Winfred the Wanderer Winfred was your average individual in the Servile Society just a few years ago. He was stuck at a dead-end job in Wellington, New Zealand, making just enough money to survive. His rent was high and he felt trapped in a life that he couldn't even recognize anymore. His life wasn't even his own. Out of desperation, he began doing some research on the internet and stumbled across the van dueling section on YouTube. He was enthralled with the lifestyle and decided that it was for him. So he saved up as much money as he could, bought a van, and converted it into a liveaboard rig. Since he was already living frugally out of necessity before, this change was quite smooth for him and allowed him to finally save a substantial amount of money. He lived in his van working the same job for a handful of years while building up his investment capital. He eventually had enough to break free. He quit his job, sold his van, and flew to America. 
For a few weeks, he stayed at an Airbnb in Austin, Texas, until he found a new van to buy and convert. He traveled across North America for about a year and decided it was time to move on again. So he sold the van and hopped onto a flight to Perth, Australia, only to repeat the process. When he was in Australia, he became enamored with a woman who lived aboard her boat, and she with him. They only spent a few weeks together, but they decided to set sail to circumnavigate the globe. It would turn out to be a five-year adventure, and they loved every minute of it. Now Winfred is free, and he found another self-liberator in the process. He was willing to make the sacrifices necessary for a life of freedom. It wasn't easy, but nothing worthwhile in life really is. His case study is a great example of how Ivanowin can use van nomadism as an intermediate vehicle for self-liberation. Pun intended. Advantages and Disadvantages From the above case studies, you should be able to see some clear advantages as well as disadvantages. Let's start with the advantages. If you're a resident of a place you never spend time in, the politics at play are completely irrelevant. It'd be akin to caring about the politics of Italy after you've had a week-long vacation to Rome. Compared to your average news junkie, this opens up a lot of time for other pursuits. It'll probably save you some health care bills down the road, too, if you've made it this far in the book. Politics probably makes your blood boil. Perpetual travelers also have the ability to utilize legal intercises that aren't available to most stationary dwellers. They can organize their life in such a manner as to avoid most of the coercion of the servile society. Because, let's face it, the most coercion comes from the government presiding over your country of residence. One other advantage was elucidated by Rayo. He said, The mobile libertarian not only bypasses most existing state coercion, but is well equipped to escape incipient totalitarianism. With the American government readying plans for general forced labor, rationing and censorship in the event of war or other national emergency, escape can be essential for philosophical, if not physical, survival. And while a retreat in the boondocks can serve as a temporary hideout, when total fascist socialism comes, those who fare best are usually those who leave early. With the modern political climate and all this talk about a wall, I think Rayo's words are more important now than they ever were then. After all, government walls are not to keep people out. They're meant to keep people in. History has more than borne out this fact. In this event, perpetual travelers will already be ahead of the game, as there are really no sane reasons they would ever choose America as their country of residence. Unfortunately, there are some disadvantages, though. Most importantly would be this strategy's reliance upon slave tags. Only in this case, it's a passport, not necessarily a driver's license. As Rayo so astutely points out, get a passport, but don't depend on it. Passports may be revoked in the event of a national emergency. Earlier this year even, the American government revealed that they might suspend passports for seriously delinquent taxes, or more specifically, in excess of $50,000, including interest and penalties. Those can add up quick. What's scarier is the fact that passports may be needed at some point in the near future to even travel domestically. Talk about a great way to keep the tax cattle in the cage. Anyway, what does this mean for perpetual travelers? As I said above, I don't think any intelligent Vanuan perpetual traveler would ever choose America as their place of residence. It's counterintuitive to the entire notion of perpetually traveling. Furthermore, even if the individual in question took pleasure in paying taxes and didn't rescind their citizenship, it would be unwise to rely upon just an American passport. Imagine if you were in Costa Rica, about to board a plane and your passport was revoked for whatever reason, i.e. delinquent taxes, national emergency, whatever. I wouldn't want to be in that position. 
A solution to this problem is dual citizenship and having two different passports. But do your research and make sure most countries will accept it. For example, you probably wouldn't want to get a passport from Somalia or Afghanistan. That way, if one is revoked, you aren't shit out of luck in some foreign country. It's not a perfect solution, and proposing citizenship for two countries to Vanuans might be a tough sell, and rightfully so. Keep in mind, proper preparation prevents piss-poor performance. Try not to get stuck in Costa Rica, unless you want to, of course. Perpetual traveling is another interesting strategy for freedom pioneers, and again, it's all up to how you structure it. You could be Victor the Vagabond, Winfred the Wanderer, a combination of the two or something all of your own. Let's close out this section with some more timeless words from Rayo. So, the free man of the world, like the alert shopper who buys the specials at various stores, selects the best features of various states, and his very mobility gives added protection from the worst depredations.